Greetings, everyone, and welcome to episode 104 of the In Squash podcast. And uh, today we have none other than Rob Dinnerman, his third appearance on the podcast. And uh, he's always uh, got uh, plenty of knowledge about the game, with re- uh, regardless uh, of the topic. But today's topic is uh, one that's very important. And uh, just a few weeks ago, I believe, uh, pro hardball doubles legend uh, and hardball extraordinaire uh, Damian Mudge uh, announced his retirement after uh, battling uh, several injuries over the past few years, and Rob Dinnerman's been covering that game like none other, and he's come on uh, today to talk about Damian and what he's done, his career, uh, and everything uh, that's gone into that. So I know you're going to enjoy this one. Uh, along with that, though, uh, uh, Rob, based out of New York City, uh, spends a lot of his, t- of his time around the squad seen and has uh, spent some time with uh, Rami Ashore and he uh, gives his insight on Rami's retirement and has uh, some interesting thoughts on that as well Uh, and also a few other topics we get into as well so uh, you'll really enjoy this one Um, looking back at the career of Damian Mudge uh, who's just announced his retirement from the Pro Hardballs Tour he's uh, amassed more titles than any uh, player in the history of that sport so you'll enjoy this one Rob Dinnerman, episode 104. Okay, everyone, welcome to episode 104. And uh, I'm very, very excited uh, having today's guest on the podcast. Uh, he was uh, once the WPSA Pro Hardball uh, number 10, uh, but more prolifically these days, he's, he's a writer. Uh, he's a senior writer for Daily Squash Report. He's also uh, well-known for what he did at SquashTalk.com in terms of uh, the pro hardball doubles and varsity squash uh, coverage that they had, amongst other things. Uh, He's written several books on the game, including uh, The Sheriff of Squash, The Life and Times of Sheriff Khan. I can be talking about none other than uh, Rob Dinnerman. Rob, great to have you back on. Uh, It's your third appearance, and I'm really excited about this one. Thank you very much for having me on, Mr. Gibson. Thank you, sir. And now, uh, as, as you know, there's so much more to squash than, than the PS game, PSA game, the softball game. Uh, and we're here to talk a, a little bit about some of the great things and some of the, uh, you know, basically what's been going on on that side of the, the, the ball, per se, uh, over the years. But uh, before we get into the thrust of that, how's life been treating you? And uh, uh, what have you got in the hopper these days? Uh, usually you have a project or two uh, going on. Well, I've got a couple that are in the works, uh, nothing uh, completely set right now, but um, in the course of about a two or three month stretch this past winter and spring, three of the books I've written were, uh, all got released. Uh, one of them was A History of Squash at Princeton University from 1928 to 2013. Another was A History of Squash at Episcopal Academy, which is a school in suburban Philadelphia that's produced some of the great squash champions uh, in the United States over the years, and most recently, Todd Harity. Uh, who was class of uh, 09 at Episcopal Academy, then um, won a national uh, college championship at Princeton, and is right now the only American player ranked in the top 50 on the PSA rankings. Mm-hmm. Um, and the third book is the one you've referred to, The Life and Times of Sharif Khan. Uh, the Sheriff of Squash, The Life and Times of Sharif Khan. He was the uh, best player, best hardball player in North America uh, throughout the beginning of the late 1960s and going all the way into the early 1980s. Uh, the North American Open, which was the key event of the uh, WPSA hardball season, he actually won 12 times during a 13-year period from 1969 through 1981. Um, mm-hmm. And he's really one of the legendary figures in the game. He's the oldest and most accomplished son of Hashim Khan, uh, you know, the great uh, yeah. Pakistani champion who won the British Open so many times during his, his uh, heyday. Right on. Now, I have, uh, you, that book's received uh, some very good reviews of late. Uh, uh, how satisfied were you with the end result? I was, I was really thrilled with the end result. This was actually uh, something that Sharif, believe it or not, broached to me initially as early as the mid-1980s. Um, okay. So this has been a long I'm coming. Um, Sharif, uh, all these years, has wanted to sort of make his statement. He's he's had a very he had a very unique life. He grew up in Pakistan and was sent uh, 10,000 miles to a pre- overseas to a prep school in England, not even knowing the English language. 
uh, when he was 11 years old. Um, he uh, made his way uh, through. He actually went to uh, Millfield uh, Prep, is the same school that Muhammad El Shabagi went to several decades later. You know, the mm -hmm. current top player, yeah. and um, and yeah. just he's had a he's had a unique life and a unique squash career. Uh, and the format we used, which I'm not, sh I wasn't sure if it was going to work or not, but it really did, was to alternate my prose with his recollections and reflections. I would describe a certain experience he had or a certain tournament he played in and won, and he would then uh, have his own memory and thoughts and perspective about what it felt like to be going through the tournament that I had just described. And I've never written in that format before, but, uh, but it worked and people really seemed to enjoy it a great deal. So I'm very happy with it. And Sharif is very happy. I think for him, it was sort of a, just a catharsis, um, mm. telling, you know, everybody about his life, but he's now well into his seventies and, um, has had a really unique life and, and, uh, living uh reliving it with me i think was helpful for him and and i learned a tremendous amount in the process of interviewing him uh and his wife karen khan who's actually the co-author the um my prose <coughs> i wrote that his reflections really she wrote um the three of us had skype sessions and numerous skype sessions during the period of almost a year and that's what led to the material that comprised the book Right on. And uh, I think you can, uh, that book can be found on, uh, on Amazon.com. Uh, it is on Amazon. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Right. Okay. Now, uh, now a few, I think it was about a month ago when I reached out to you and I thought, you know, it'd be great to have Rob back on. And uh, we, we said, okay, let's, let's do it in a few weeks. And then in the meantime, uh, there was an announcement that came out on the, on the pro hardball uh, circuit, but Damien Mudge, uh, had announced his retirement and you you got back to me right away after that and uh, you know you've written a, a piece on uh, the sdaprotour.com on Damien and what an accomplished uh, career he's had uh, you describe him as the most accomplished doubles player in in sports history so can you give us uh, some background I mean not everyone uh, is familiar with the hardball game uh, I'm sure they are in, uh, stateside but uh, give us some background in terms of his numbers and the accolades uh, that made him or make him the, the most accomplished uh, player in the history of that sport. I'm happy to do so. Damien, uh, like Sharif, although in a different way, has also had a very unique uh, journey. He was uh, initially one of the really top ranked, uh, he's from Australia, Southern Australia, and he was uh, part of a very, very um, deep and strong junior group uh, his contemporaries included David Palmer, uh, uh, Ben Gould, Paul Price, uh, and Dan Jensen, and Dan Johnny Jenner, White and Matt Jensen. Uh, John White was a, was not not was was uh, a little bit earlier than those guys. Okay. Um, but those, those guys all came up pretty much at, at the same time. Uh, uh, Palmer uh, won, has won multiple British and uh, and uh, World Opens and is now the coach at Cornell. Paul Price uh, was ranked as high as number two on the um, on the PSA Tour at one point and got to the finals at the 2000 British Open. Uh, Dan Jensen, I think, was ranked in the top four or five. Yeah. Uh, you know, for yeah, he's years. a great player. He was a great player. Yeah. Uh, so, um, and that really is the last group of uh, of Australian juniors. You know that has the amount of depth and the amount of talent that that group had. There's never, there has not been since them, since those guys came up in the mm. mid nineties, there has not been uh, a group that Australia has produced uh, of anywhere near that, that level. Uh, Damien himself started on the, on the PSA tour uh, late in his teens, got up uh, just inside the top 50 uh, and then had uh, missed two and a half years in the late 1990s with uh, a pretty severe case of chronic fatigue syndrome. Mm. During that time, he ended up, or towards the end of that time, Gary Waite, who also was a top 20 player on the, uh, on the PSA tour from Canada. Uh, he was the head pro at the University Club of New York in the late 90s, and he uh, brought Mudge over to be his assistant pro. When Gary uh, moved on in 2001, Mudge became the head pro at the University Club of New York, and he's been in that position throughout the 18 years since then. While he was with Gary, who at the time was the top, he and Gary and uh, Jamie Bentley, a Canadian with the top doubles team, Damien picked up doubles. And 
Gary, he became Gary's partner during the 1999-2000 season. They, um, for seven years, pretty much dominated the Pro Doubles Tour with Gary on the left wall and Damien on the right. Uh, at the end of the 2006-07 season, Gary retired. He was in his early 40s by then. Damien then moved to the left wall and played that for the next nine years. The first three with uh, Victor Berg, a, another Canadian, yep. a very powerful, strong Canadian player. And then, uh, and then uh, five years with Ben Gould. Uh, mm. And then after Gould retired, Mudge played for the rest of that season with Victor Berg and then the next two, next two years with Manik Mathur. So basically, there was a period of uh, of 17 years. Let's see, from yeah, so 17 years during which 18 years, sorry, during which Mudge uh, won was part of the dominant of dominant teams on in pro doubles uh, with several different partners and playing both walls. Particularly, the part about playing both walls is very unusual. Mudge played eight years on the right wall with Gary. Uh, then nine years on the left wall with the several partners I mentioned, Victor Burke and Ben Gould particularly, and then his last two years with Manik Mathur, who was uh, a very talented left-handed player from India who was part of Trinity College uh, series of national championship uh, college teams. And mm. during that time, uh, Damien won almost 175 tournaments, um, which is by, I mean, there That's isn't a, one, there's a single event on the tour which Damien hasn't won more often than any other player. Um, that were, including one period of 17 years in which he won the Heights, the, the Heights Casino, the event at the Heights Casino Club in Brooklyn, which is called the Johnson. And it's one of the sort of favorite spots on the, on the uh, ISDA and then later SDA Pro Doubles Tour. And again, he has, he's actually won it beginning in 2002, going all the way through the 2018 season with Manic Mathur. Mm. Before the beginning of last season, the 2018-19 season, Mudge had to undergo a very, very serious and invasive uh, knee operation called an allograft, uh, which, in, which included transferring the cartilage from a cadaver to sort of replace the cartilage in his right knee, which by then had been operated on several times. Mm. And in the last tournament of the 2018 season, he badly injured it and, and blew a hole basically through the cartilage. So he had to undergo this complicated operation, missed all of last season, but was planning to uh, come back for this season. Um, and in the meantime, Monik Mathur, who'd been his partner for, his, for Damien's last two years, ruptured his Achilles tendon last October, playing in a tournament in New York. Mm. So the, the sort of hope was that both of them would be able to make comebacks from these respective fairly serious injuries and operations and play this season. Maddock, I think, is, is along in his recovery and is hoping to play. Damien, uh, as recently as early August, uh, told me that he was hoping to be ready for the beginning of this season. But when I called him about three weeks later, he told me that he had decided to retire. And I immediately, just in the past week, went over to him at the club and interviewed him and wrote the article that you mentioned. Um, mm -hmm. So Damien, as I said, one more player of the year awards, one more team of the year awards, one more tournaments. Uh, the only uh, four undefeated seasons that have ever happened uh, in pro doubles history, he was part of of those he was you know he was on he was one of the players on each of those teams right. uh, twice with Gary Waite once with Manic and once with uh, Ben Gould and he basically is a walking record book in terms of um, in terms of accomplishments in professional doubles right now until month until Mudge's career had uh, had begun to unfold perhaps it might be said that uh, that Gary Waite was the the most accomplished player on the hardball circuit of all time you may Probably you'll you'll know more, exactly. more about that than I do. But they were a tour. Uh, their their pairing was a tour de force. Uh, I would uh, I would argue. Talk about the Mudge weight pairing and how formidable, uh, which you had already alluded to uh, just now, how formidable they were. It was they were they were a tremendous team. Uh, both of them were very very hard hitters. Um, yeah. Uh, Gary, you know, had been playing doubles for probably 10 years before Mudge joined him. And, and uh, so Gary also brought a, a level of experience and savvy. Well, Ga that Gary was a, was a prolific hardball doubles player as a junior uh, all, all throughout his uh, career, wasn't he? Softball and hardball. Uh, absolutely. He was actually, uh, he actually went to Harvard. And even while he was at Harvard, he was playing very actively on, on the 
on all the different circuits. He played plenty of softball. I think he was ranked as high as 14. He was definitely in the top 20 in the yeah. PSA rankings as well. Yeah. Um, he was, uh, he was, he won the North American Open Singles Hardball Championships, uh, and um, and he and especially Jamie Bentley were really a formative. I mean, he won the North American both with Scott Dolmage, who's another Canadian player, yeah. and with Jamie Bentley um, during the night multiple times in this case during the nineties, um, and uh, and then uh, then he joined with Mudge. Uh, as I say, right at the end of the 90s, and, and they became a great team. They basically just put just such tremendous offensive pressure. They both, much as a big strapping Australian who could just rear back and crush the ball. And Damien also uh, would play closer to the front wall than any other player uh, because he A, had the hand speed to be able to react even when he was close to the front wall on balls hit at him. And he also had the wingspan to make it very difficult to lob over him. Mm. So any player who hit the ball to much the area, the ball would be coming back at them really hard, practically before they'd, they'd finish their, their, you know, finish their stroke. Right. They basically just crammed the ball, they just rammed the ball down opponent's throats. That's basically what they did. So, so of all of, uh, I mean, obviously you pointed out that Mudge, regardless, uh, he, he was the one common denominator in all of this. Uh, it, it always led to victory. Uh, but of, uh, of all of the partners that he's had success with, uh, not necessarily the most uh, successful pairing, but wh which pairing would you say uh, was the most intriguing pairing of, of his, uh, throughout his career? Um, well, he he and Mudge won 75 tournaments together, and uh, by a pretty big margin, they, that is the most that any team has ever won. And uh, and that's also much, quite a few more than Mudge won with any of his other partners. Um, again, they were together for eight seasons, uh, three of which, by the way, three of which they were undefeated. Um, I said two before, it's actually three, 99, 2000. 2001, 2002, and 2004, 2005. Um, mm. So uh, th they were the they were the longest standing of much, of the teams that much played on, and the team that recorded the most the most championships. Um, his 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 partnership with Manic, uh, the two years that they played together, um, that made a bit that might have been the most uh, interesting and entertaining team because Manic mm. is a very very creative and accomplished and um, an accurate shop maker. And uh, they, they and plus by then, um, it, you know, Monik was much younger than Damien and, and just as Damien learned from Gary, Monik learned from Damien, uh, although Monik was already a great player even before he and Damien teamed up. Uh, but that, that was the, that team, I think playing at their best uh, might have been the, the the best of the teams that uh, that Mudge was part of. They, they mm -hmm. certainly um, they really uh, they that was there was also a team as I say Gary and Damien basically just went at a team real hard, and they didn't really need a plan B, and mm -hmm. they could extemporize when they had to. But yeah. Mudge and uh, Manic really kind of um, worked together more, and and just they there was a certain level of thought and strategy that you could see from them that, that, you know, perhaps exceeded the situation with any of the other teams that much played for. Mm. Yeah. I've, uh, I mean, I've had the opportunity to play uh, Victor Berg in, in softball several times and I know what he's capable, capable, capable of in terms of shot making and uh, speed and, and whatnot around the court. So those sort of intangible things uh, I would have uh, liked to have seen those two, uh, Play. Well, there are a couple of things about that. Um, you're absolutely right. Victor is very creative, very, very fast on his feet, almost yeah. like a road runner. Uh, <laughs> and um, yeah. really, really, uh, you know, shoot the lights out when he was when he was on. He's got the uh, two-handed backhand. Well, it's, yeah, although when he played with Mudge, he was on the right wall. Oh, so okay. there yeah. wasn't handed backhand and Mudge, right, right. as I say, was nine years on the left and was a great, great left wall player. But Mudge, Mudge was always better on the right wall than he was on the left. And so the best squash that the teams Mudge played for, you know, the best squash that was played for those teams was, was played when Damien was on the right. And as I said, that was with Gary at the beginning of his career and with Manic uh, at the end of his career. 
Right. Uh, but Victor was a was a was a mercurial, charismatic, very entertaining uh, player, and and had great results. You know, mostly with Damien, but he had some very good results with some of his other partners as well. Uh, most notably, Willie Hosey. Oh yeah, yeah, they would have been a great parent. I mean, uh, pretty much. Uh, I think Willie sort of was one of his uh, mentors uh, as a young player growing up in Canada. Absolutely, well. Willie yeah. was. Willie was quite a bit older than Victor when they when they teamed up in the early 2000s, and uh, and Victor learned a lot from him. And there was a period there in those early 2000s when Mudge and Wade were winning every tournament. That very free, more frequently than any other team, Hosey and Berg were the team they would play in the finals. Right, right. Yeah, I guess uh, I mean with Willie, I mean he was just such a dogged and uh, fit, and you, you know you watch him play you don't think he he's going to do very much but he he's absolutely a, a world-class player isn't he absolutely very fast very clever was a yeah. world-class uh, ranking with the psa i think he won either nine or ten irish uh, national championships yeah. he has the yeah. record for that and as recently as a few years ago he's won a couple of the age group masters tournament during that biennial masters event that they have yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, so that yeah, yeah. I guess so. Gary, Gary, and uh, and Damian were were the most prolific uh, pairing among uh, of the pairings that he's had. But uh, Manic uh, uh, is right up there as well. Exactly, Manic's a great player, and Manic and Damian really played two tremendously successful seasons together. So uh, you also you provide sort of a like a, like a veritable laundry list of, of injuries on, on, in that story that uh, that Damien had to uh, overcome over the what I'm assuming over the past few years. But you also mentioned uh, even during his uh, brief foray into the uh, the PSA tour, he he suffered uh, from uh, chronic fatigue syndrome. So yeah, is it something that he uh, was it something that 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 he sort of had to deal with throughout his career, or is this uh, something that came in the twilight of his career, the, these injuries? Well, okay, the chronic fatigue, of course, was, was early, you know, and took several years. Um, he looked, Damien looked absolutely indestructible on the court, as I say, he was big, he was imposing, he played far up and dared you to hit the ball at him. Um, he was, um, you know, very, for, for, a, for a big guy, he moved extremely well. Uh, and he really, as I say, just he was like a force out there. But to but to be fair, he had a number of concussions. Um, uh, just how how does that happen? Is that is that is that a common occurrence in, in hardball? It's not a it's not a, a particularly a common occurrence, but it could happen. Uh, one of them was I think um, Victor Berg hit him hard on a follow through when they both were on the right wall in the <laughs> yeah. head with his racket. Yeah, and, uh, that match had to be stopped for a while, but he was able to resume. Wow. There was one other time where he sort of lost his balance and, and just crashed into the into a side wall. And that um, resulted in a concussion. That match had that match ended right on the spot. He could not continue. Hmm. And concussions, as you may know, uh, have a way of, of it becomes easier to get more concussions as you acquire them. And at one point he even briefly experimented playing with a helmet, although that <laughs> right. um right. That 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 didn't last long. He hasn't had a. Con it's been about ten, almost a dozen years since he's had a concussion. He okay. did have several of them, and that was a problem. He also uh, at one point had a fluke injury to his left wrist. He was rollerblading on the New York's on a New York sidewalk, and I think he hit a, a wet spot or hit a, a bump in the in the sidewalk and went over and uh, landed on his left wrist. He's a right-handed player, but the injury to his left wrist required them to insert a pin. Uh, in the wrist, and he was not able to perspire because otherwise the pin would have caused the uh, tissue to become infected. So he missed six or seven weeks when that happened. And he's also had uh, injuries and arthroscopic surgeries to both knees. Um, mm. I think three on the left, and it was three on the right until he had this last one. Uh, the last tournament of 2018 in Cleveland, he was only about a month and a half removed from having had an arthroscopic surgery on that knee. And then in the final, he made a move and felt tremendous pain in the leg. And that was what resulted in this very invasive surgery I described that happened last summer when they had to uh, put the uh, cartilage from a cadaver uh, into his right. knee. Well, I guess that's... Uh, so it's been... Maybe just the way, you know, the way he left it all on the court, that sort of comes with the territory. Yeah, we're talking about we're talking about 20 tournaments a season. There are pro-ams mm. as well as, you know, the actual event itself, uh, the traveling, the, the matches are grueling matches. 
the way he played. He played a very physical style of play, and that eventually can wear you out as well. It wasn't like he was a shop maker who, you know, didn't have to exert during points. He's a big guy. There was a lot of slamming on the brakes and change in direction. And yes, I think it all just sort of added up. Right. Now, well, obviously he's retired and uh, is there, is it going to be easy to fill that void on, on the, uh, the pro hardball circuit? Uh, how, how do things sort of, how are things shaping up uh, now that he's gone? May, perhaps even Manic is, uh, well, hopefully he'll be back, but uh, what do, uh, what does it look like now uh, with the, with the, uh, the new season coming up and the new players uh, that are uh, hopefully going to take a, a well, Damien will pass the baton on, on to them. Right. Well, that's, that's really an interesting situation. Uh, as I say, Damien actually, he retired a few weeks ago, but he also missed all of last season and right. uh, recovered from that operation. And, and Manic missed almost all of last season. Manic uh, got hurt in the third tournament of the season uh, last year after winning the first two, by the way, with other partners. Uh, and and they were well ahead in the final in which he ruptures Achilles. But he was, um, as I say, out from October on. And that team, as I said, in the 2017-18 year had gone undefeated. They, they came into that tournament having won, I think, something like 16 tournaments in a row and over 50 matches in a row. Uh, it came into the, you know, at the end of last season, uh, the season before last, rather. And... Um, sort of a symbol of, you know, what had befallen them. Mudge having his operation in August of 18, uh, then Maddox ruptures Achilles in October, two months later. Um, Damien was sitting behind the glass back wall watching Maddox final and still had one crutch. And it was actually Damien's crutch that Maddox had to lean on to hobble off the court after Maddox huh. ruptured his Achilles. Wow. So, it was really it was really a scene that symbolized just how you know how quickly things can change because at the end of the previous year they were the dominant team and by late October neither one of them could walk without the aid of a of a you know of a crutch or a cane of some sort. Mm -hmm. So last year there was sort of at the end last season after Monica had gone down there was sort of this realization, boy, oh boy, there's no dominant team right now. The field is wide open. There was a lot of partner switching in the wake of these injuries and in the course of the season uh, as different top players, you know, tried out different partners to sort of see what combination worked, worked the best. And um, it was sort of, it was a very unusual season that way. There's usually been either one dominant team or a couple of top teams Whereas this past season there were there was more there were more mixed results than had ever happened before, right? And uh, and, and you know at, at, at the feeling all of last year was okay. This is a little bit of a sort of an unusual season, and then things might go back to normal next season, meaning this coming one. Now that's been thrown into disarray. Mudge is retired. Uh, Monik is not uh, is still recovering. Has not fully recovered yet, as of the last time I spoke with him a week ago, and is not sure if he can play in the first event of the season, which is only a month away in Baltimore. And uh, so there's um, there's still a lot of. I, I think this year there's going this early season at least there's going to be a continuation of some of the filling out and mixed partnerships and mixed results that happened during most of the last part of last season. So is there anyone out there? Are there any uh, Damien Mudges or Mannix uh, out there that um, that you see that could sort of potentially uh, fill the void? Well, there are you know, the, those two were definitely the two best players on the tour. Uh, at the end of last season, uh, John Russell, who I believe won some national junior championships in England uh, during mm -hmm. his teenage years, an extremely talented uh, player, always has had a very good, uh, solid career, sort of in that group that was losing to the to Mudge's teams in the semis and finals, uh, you know, during the course of the late part of the first decade of the 2000s and through the, the teens, the second decade. Um, he actually won the last four tournaments last year, the last two of them with a with an Australian player who's been based in Canada named Scott Arnold, um, right, right. who's a very He's doing powerful. some coaching in Canada, I think. 
Yes, he's. Uh, I think that he's the pro. I think at one of the clubs in Canada. Mm-hmm. And Arnold has been. He and another Canadian, a Canadian player named Robin Clark, had been one of the top teams on the tour for several years. A few years ago. Uh, the only reason Arnold did not play a more active schedule last year is he had some sort of visa issue that kept him uh, basically in Canada, that kept him from playing in the tournaments in the U.S. Um, that finally got resolved early this past spring. And uh, they won the last, Arnold and Russell won the last two tournaments of uh, the end of this past season, one of which was the Kellner Cup, which is one of the most important stops on the tour. And the other was a somewhat smaller event in Buffalo. So they really, and they're planning to team up this year. They've already entered the first tournament in Baltimore. They go into this season. Arnold, I mean, Russell, first of all, ended up last year statistically ranked number one on the, on the tour. Okay. Uh, and, and Arnold and Russell certainly go into this season uh, as, as the team to beat, pending how, you know, how Maddox, uh, you know, recovers, uh, completes his recovery from his Achilles. Well, that sounds intriguing. I mean, you've got those guys, uh, you know, the the favorites heading in with Manic, uh, perhaps not having but a. They're not. They're not overwhelming. They're not overwhelming favorites, though. Um, right. Zach Alex, Zach Alexander, who plays mm. on the uh, uh, plays on the PSA tour and has for quite a while. He's from Australia, but he's based in Connecticut. He and Robin Clark won the North American Open, which is uh, one of the real prize uh, stops on the tour. Uh, and um, and they, on the way, by one point in the fifth, they beat uh, a very good team composed of players who went to Trinity College, uh, Bernardo Samper and Ivan Bat, okay. um, who went to events last year. So they could make plenty of trouble. In fact, Zach had a really uh, unique day of accomplishment late in last, last February. Uh, in the morning, he won the final round of the U.S. National Hardball Championships, and then he took a a subway, the six stops that he needed to get to get to Brooklyn, and he and uh, he and Clark, I guess it was, won the um, won the finals of the uh, uh, of the turn. Uh, I'm sorry, he and Chris Callis won the finals of the uh, of the Heights Casino event, the, the tournament in Brooklyn, which Mudge had won for 17 years in a row before not playing. Last oh wow! Year. Okay, so, 17 in a row. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But that's yeah. quite. A, but that's quite a singles doubles parlay for Zach, also. Yeah, oh, um, for sure. And he, yeah. he's a good, strong player who can play both walls. He's going to be a factor this year. Chris Callis was ranked number one at one point last season. He's a former Princeton captain. Who well, those Australia, the Australians have definitely have the that sort of hardball sort of makeup, don't they? I mean, for the most part, uh, most a lot of them aren't really finesse players. They're big, big hitters, right? So that's exactly. That's exactly right, and that can be certainly said of Mudge and Zach and uh, and uh, Scott Arnold. There's a guy actually here in Dubai. I used to a few years back. I was playing in the Premier League here, and he was. You might know um, Pennington. What's his name? Uh, there's a Pennington. Oh, Grant Pennington. Yeah, Grant Grant, Grant Grantley Pennington. Well, his his nephew uh, Gavin Pennington uh, was on. He played number one for for my team. I played at two, and Gavin. He uh, you thought he hit the ball through the wall. He was crushing, he crushed every ball. It was amazing. But it just seems to be uh, commonplace amongst uh, the majority of the Australian players. He might want to come over to uh, North America and try the doubles tour. He should. I'll I'll, uh, suggest that to him. (laughs) Grant Pennington got to the finals of the SL Green event in the U.S. in I think 1999 when uh, Dave McNeely beat him. So, and he also, so he, he played a little bit on the, on the WPSA tour as well. Um, right. One other thing about Mudge, one other thing I want to add about Mudge, and that's, he is the only, he was the, until he retired, he was the only player who dated back to the, when the, when the ISDA tour, the forerunner of the SDA was founded uh, by Gary Wade and James Hewitt, a Canadian player in, uh, in the winter of 2000. Mm-hmm. The, uh, there's nobody. He was, the, he was the only connection to the late '90s and the early, and the right turning into 2000 when the uh, when pro doubles as a you know tour became sort of formally organized. And you know, can, when you combine that with the fact that a couple of months earlier, meaning late this spring, um, Nicole David and Laura Massaro and Jenny Duncalf um, all retired. Uh, it, it's just been the case that um, I mean. 
Nicole has these great credentials in terms of how many, you know, world opens and British Open yeah. she's won, how many consecutive years she was number one. She basically had a record very similar to Mudge's record in doubles. And Laura Mastero is a multiple winner of, of world and British Open championships. It, it's just the case that, I guess, coincidentally, in about a five or six month period, some of the really leading lights uh, on, some of the, on some of the pro tours and squash, uh, you know, ended up ending their careers. Oh, and, and that's not to mention Rami Ashur. Well, who, I was just going to bring uh, that up. Uh, that, that was, yeah, my, Rami was leading Rami's into my next time. question. Um, okay, Rami won, Rami won three World Opens. He won yeah. the British Open. There are plenty of people who feel that at his best, he played squash at a higher level than anybody's ever played. And, um, yeah, he probably, was, you know, so I, I mean, you'd have to say he's probably the greatest talent uh, the game's ever seen. But we, I mean, his career ended at such a, on such short notice. I mean, it's, it's just, it's almost tragic. It is. And at such an early age and, and, um, and uh, so, so you can throw Rami there too. Rami, yeah. Nicole David, Damian Mudge, Lara Massaro, uh, Jenny Duncalf, uh, who herself was, I think, a British Open finalist. That's a lot of great players with great careers. That and not, and not, too, uh, not too much before that as well. Nick Matthew. Uh, yeah, although Nick wasn't quite in this five or six months uh, stretch that you know I'm referencing, no. but uh, he he retired not 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 too not long, too long before, before that. that as well, yeah. yeah, but you, I mean, uh, Rami was uh, in New York City for quite a bit of time, I think, uh, because his brother is is coaching or has a has a facility there there where he's coaching. Uh, did you uh, get to spend any time or speak with with Rami during his uh, his time in New York, Rob? I spent a lot of time with Rami, uh, although I would have liked to have spent even more in addition mm. to being, uh, you know, again, I've never seen squash played better than Rami played it in the times I've watched him play at the Tour of Champions and at other events like that. Um, he also is a very, very uniquely interesting person uh, in terms of just his personality. He's introspective. He's thoughtful. Um, you, you get the feeling that he's, uh, he's I think, his creativeness as a player stems from what I think is a very unique mind that he has. And uh, I've always, um, I've always tremendously enjoyed speaking with Rami and, and um, come out of it really having learned something um, unique and interesting from, from the encounter. Mm. And um, one of the times that I saw Rami was this past spring uh, when Rami ran, Rami uh, along with his brother Hisham at a small committee, ran a tournament that is based on a system that he and uh, Osama Khalifa, who uh, is an intercollegiate, was an, won the intercollegiates uh, from, right. um, in the U.S. He would have competed uh, against uh, Ali Farag, right? Uh, uh, well, uh, by, by the time uh, Osama... Osama's older brother, Amr um, Khalifa, was sort of more Farag's contemporary. Right, and they right. played okay. each other in college. Farag, uh, who went to Harvard and graduated, I think, in 2014, of course, is now the number one player in the world. But um, but Rami had developed a system called the RAM system. Uh, and it's based, it's, uh, at a, they actually played a, a four-player tournament at a club in New York, which is the City View Club in Queens, at which, is, at which Rami's brother Hisham is the head pro. Uh, this is a very it's sort of interesting uh, format. Uh, the the matches are played. There's three minutes per uh, three minutes per game, and there's a clock right at the tin at the front wall, and uh, the, it doesn't run between points. Uh, it only runs during the point, and so you can sort of see the the you know the time dwindle down as the as the game moves along, and whoever has the most points when the three minutes runs out wins that game, except for the fact that. Uh, when the game ends, if one player has more points than the other, that player still has to win one more point before the trailing player catches him in order to win the game. Uh, and if he doesn't, if the other player is able to tie the score in this extra time, then whoever wins the next point wins the game. Uh, matches are still three out of five, but the game is not to 11. The game is based on a three-minute uh you know, time clock in which the time is only running while the points are being played. So if I, if at the end of uh, three minutes, if I was up, uh, let's say you, let's say you were ahead of me three to one at the end of three minutes, would that be the end of the game? Then? 
No. If I, first of all, the scores were much higher than that. I'm going to get to that in a moment. But okay. secondly, if, 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 if I'm ahead 3-1 at the end of the three minutes, you, the, 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 mat, the game goes on. I have to win one more point before you catch me in order to, to secure the game. So okay. if Obama has 3-1, I have to win one of the next two points to, to officially win the game. If okay. you're able to win each of the next two points, this Tyler scored three all, whoever wins the next point wins the game. Oh, okay, yeah, that, uh, that's interesting. Okay, right. And, and, um, but but, but what, was, what, what, what interested me the most uh, as I was there watching, and by the way, the, the ter- before the tournament, which consisted of four players, was held, uh, Rami and Hisham played an exhibition match, um, just sort of to introduce the crowd to the system, et cetera. The most interesting thing to me was the fact that the scores at the end of those games were, think- were, were usually more like, uh, some of them were, one score was, I think, 11-9, another score was, I think, 9-6 or something. Right. A lot more points uh, can be played during that three-minute period. Remember, the clock's only running while the point is in motion. While the, when the point ends and the players get to their boxes and prepare to serve, the clock is not running. Uh, so even though a normal game on the PSA Tour might take 10 or 12 minutes to play, the scores are really not that much different than the scores that, were, that occurred in this, in this system mm-hmm. that Rami has put together, which means that in the regular games on the PSA Tour, there's a lot more dead time than, than I would have realized or thought. Right. Well, yeah, that's that's interesting. Uh, uh, would you were you impressed with with the scoring system? Would you would you say it's a viable option for for some maybe at a club level even just to get? I, I absolutely was. I was very impressed by it. I don't think it's going to take over and replace the you know eleven point point of rally no. system, but <laughs> but it worked. I mean, yeah. it really worked. That they. they um, the, it was a, it was an intriguing concept. I think that even once the novelty wears off, it's a it's an intriguing way of playing a game. I do know that as um, you know, once it got down to twenty seconds or so, the players were very aware of that and very aware of wanting to, you know, win the next couple of points and be in as good position as possible going into that extra time, you know, option that I that I mentioned. I would imagine and, that uh, uh, you know, in the in the exhibition match that that Rami and Hisham. I mean, you, you talk about Rami, you know, what what a a genius he is. Hisham, I mean, some of the shots this guy pulls off, I don't think anyone can. Hisham is an incredibly talented player, and yes. I don't think anybody fully appreciates the degree to which that's true. He played in the finals of the Hyder, which is a tournament in New York every year, sort of a, a, sort of a good, maybe second-level pro event. Um, he played Ryan, uh, Ryan Koskelly, who's been ranked in the top 20, I think, or right around there on the, on the PSA tour for quite a while. A very good, solid, you know, fundamentally sound, mistake-free uh, Australian player, who, as I say, has a good ranking on the tour. He, uh, Ryan won the first two games, and then Hisham just sort of, for whatever reason, just found his own and blew Ryan out the last three games. And as I say, Ryan was at least in the top 20 at the time that Hisham did this. Hisham's talent level is is much closer to Rami's than anybody has any idea, and much and way above the talent level of many of the top right, uh, the high, the top tier on the PSA tour. Yeah. And uh, and he and Rami had a he and Rami had a wonderful exhibition, quite competitive. Um, Rami wound up winning in four games. Uh, there was a good there was a feel good atmosphere all the way through, but they were trying to win every point. And um, and I have to say this about Rami as well. He is. He retired a few months ago. He did so because his right knee had become arthritic, and because a number of different attempts to solve the, to resolve the issue, including a stem cell surgery procedure, failed. And he didn't think it would ever. It would his knee would ever be right again. And he unfortunately announced his retirement. Uh, but during this match, he made some unbelievably extraordinary gets, um, mm-hmm. retrievals of ball that uh, balls that. It doesn't seem to be that anybody with a bad knee would possibly be able to get to. Now, I, I understand. I, I have no reason to question the extent of, of his knee issue or the fact that it made him quit a game that he loves at the extremely young age of 31. But um, anybody who moved as well as he did in that match, I, I, I wouldn't be shocked if at some point he made he may reappear. I, I he hasn't said anything be. that implies. Yeah. He hasn't said anything that implies that he will. 
uh, and he did retire, but he made some incredible gets that day. Uh, yeah. that just, I'm just saying that for what it's worth. Well, I hope that's true. I mean, we'd I mean, there was no one quite like him on tour. And uh, like you said, I mean, the, the few, I mean, when he did play, I think it was er usually early in the tournaments, there was evidence uh, of that. But then as tournaments went on, uh, I guess the wear and tear of having to play so many sort of tougher matches caught up with him. But hopefully, I mean, if he can get himself in a place where he can get through a whole event without that stuff creeping in, then yeah, we, we may see him again. Yeah, don't Hopefully. forget, he won a pretty major, he, the last turn he won was a pretty major event and he'd been out for about a year, you know, before that. So mm. he has made some pretty dramatic comebacks in, in the past. And and I, as I say, he's a, he's a very interesting, introspective guy. I don't, I personally don't think that he's, he has fully made peace with not playing anymore. And I think if, if anything happens with his knee that, that, you know, gives him a vision of maybe being able to return, uh, you know, uh, he may act on it. Uh, and that's completely me speculating, um, mm. you know, and, and it'll be up to him either way, but boy, he sure can play some ex unbelievably uh, entertaining and, and uh, yeah. charismatic squash. There's nobody, nobody like him in full flight. No, absolutely. Yeah, very charismatic, incredible to watch. Great, uh, unparalleled skills, I'd say, skill set. So, um, yeah, it's sad to see him go, but uh, you know, there there could be uh, he could come back, like you said. Now, now, Rob, uh, the U.S. varsity squash uh, scene is uh, almost upon us. And last season, uh, I mean, you know more about this uh, uh, than anybody. Uh, we saw Harvard uh, dominate both the men's and women's, and, and uh, I could be wrong here, but it was almost unprecedented uh, what they did. Uh, describe the the season last year that uh, that the Harvard squash program, the varsity program, men's and women's, uh, had, and how how incredible it was what they accomplished. Uh, it was it was an amazing season that they had, that's for sure. Um, uh, for the first time uh, in Mike Way, who uh, is the was uh, he was the coach of the Canadian national team for a number of years, and he coached Jonathan Power when Power became the number one was the number one player in the world uh, mm -hmm. some time ago. He has been the coach at uh, Harvard. Uh, he just finished his ninth season as the coach at Harvard, and um, I think he's an extraordinary coach for sure. He's the coach of the men's and the women's teams. And um, last year, both the men and the women's teams went undefeated wire to wire and won their respective national championships, which is called the Howe Cup for the women and the Potter Cup for the men. Uh, and not only that, each of his top players won the, uh, won the individual championships. Um, uh, 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 Gina Has Kennedy, that ever been uh, done before, women. Rob, in, in varsity squash? That um, that that has been done before. That's been a while, but but forgetting the individual for the moment. And by the way, Victor Cruen from France, who was, was a freshman this past year, is the person who won the individuals. Right. Not for, it has not been the last time any man any person coached both the men's and the women's teams to undefeated national championship seasons occurred uh, 22 years earlier during the 1996-97 team when Bill Doyle uh, coached the Harvard men and the Harvard women to their national championships. In both cases, back in 97, uh, the Howe Cup and Potter Cup finals were 5-4 with Harvard, you know, barely winning. Uh, in this case, the finals of those two events were both 9-0. Uh, the men mm. beat Trinity College, which, when, which had won it the previous two years and beat the Harvard in both of those finals. They beat them 9-0 in the, in the Potter Cup final. Uh, and the women uh, also played Trinity College in the in the women's final, and uh, the Harvard women had beat them nine nothing. And this is the real kicker about the women's season. Not only did they win that Potter Cup, that How Cup final nine nothing, they won all their matches all season nine nothing. They had ten regular <laughs> wow. season wins, which they won nine nothing. And the How Cup is composed of the top eight teams, so you have to win three matches to win the How Cup. The women won each of them nine nothing. So they had a total of 117 wins and no defeats over the course of last season. That has never been approached. It's unprecedented. Much yeah, there's never a, there's never a team that hasn't lost you know at least a half dozen individual matches during a season. They didn't lose a single match, and incidentally, Penn 
the number one pen player, Riam Sedki, who currently, now she just graduated, is playing on the PSA Tour. She had won the Intercollegiate Individual Championship the year before in 2018. Mm -hmm. So the Harvard number one player, Sabrina Sobe, Amanda's younger sister, um, you know, had to play her and beat her, obviously, to keep, uh, to, to have Harvard, you know, go undefeated, even in terms of individual matches, much less in dual meet play last year. So uh, this was also the fifth time, fifth consecutive How Cup championship for the Harvard women. That ties a record um, also set by the Bill Doyle group in the early 90s. Um, they are overwhelming favorites, even though they've lost two of their best players, Sabrina Sobe and Kaylee Leonard, their numbers one and three. They're overwhelming favorites to win the How Cup again this year. If they do that, it'll be six in a row. And as I say, that'll that'll be a, an all-time record. Well, Mike Way's been the coach of Harvard for nine years. Um, in 2000, his first year in 2011, the women lost 5-4 in the final to Yale. In 2014, they lost 5-4 to Trinity. Other than that, he's, you know, he's won the other seven, and he is basically two matches away from Harvard having won nine straight half cups. That's incredible. Yeah. Now, uh, um, were there any other, were there, were there any um, other noteworthy accomplishments last season from, from some of the other varsity teams? I know I just had uh, Martin Heath on. Uh, he was coaching the, the, the Canadian Pan Am Games team, and I had him on. Right. But uh, we did talk a little bit about Rochester, and uh, they seemed to make uh, some, some serious inroads. Um, they almost beat uh, Trinity there in the semifinal, didn't they? Uh, yeah, they certainly did. That was very close. And Rochester, Martin, he's done a great job with that program. He really has. And, and Rochester is consistently one of the contending teams. They actually got to the final of the uh, Potter Cup and beat Trinity in the semis uh, in 2016. Um, mm. So he's he's they've got they've got a very strong program. One of their players, Mario Yanez, got to the finals of the individuals in 2017. He's the player whom Osama Khalifa beat in that finals. That okay. I referred to Osama as having individuals. Um, Rochester uh, has had a very strong program for a while, and they're a very, very good team. There are other, there are other really strong contending teams, though. I will say that, although the Harvard men, the Harvard men did not dominate college men's squash the way the Harvard women dominated Harvard uh, college women's squash, but the Harvard men still won. They were, still, you know, a, a clear and away champion last year. But uh, Trinity is. You know, Trinity's gotten to the finals 21 of the past 22 years and won 17 of them. I mean, Paul Asayante's uh, accomplishments with that program have been tremendous. Yeah. They are going to be, let's say, we're in the finals this past year as well. They are going to be, they have some very good uh, freshmen coming in, from what I gather. They're going to be a very strong contender. Rochester's going to have a strong team. Penn has become a very good team. Their number one player, Andrew Douglas. Oh, yeah. Um, well, he, he's, he's, a, he's a big-time player. He, he knows how to win the big matches, doesn't he? Yes, and he's gotten to the finals of the – he got to the finals of the SL Green, the U.S. National Championship in both 2017 and 2018. He actually beat Victor Cruen, the Harvard number one who won the individuals. He beat him twice this past year. He beat him in the dual meet, and he beat him when they played in the Potter Cup, I think, semifinal. So, um, and and he's got that's he's one he's the best of a number of very strong Penn players. Penn also had their uh, 59-year-old um, squash facility completely renovated and refurbished during this past year. So they're going to have you know a whole new a whole new appearance and a whole new uh, facility to, to play in this coming season. And I know that they're feeling very good about how they're going to do. Yeah. Um, Spencer Lovejoy, who's Yale's number one player, is a good, solid player. And that program is doing, is going to be, they're not going to challenge for the, for the championship, but they're, they're moving back to respectability as well after a couple of down years. So, um, you know, St. Lawrence has been good recently. Princeton's going to be much better. Uh, um, uh, uh, Yusuf uh, uh, Ibrahim uh, is um, one, I think, the a PSA Player of the Month a couple of times yeah, um, yeah. during this spring and summer. He's he missed he missed some time in Princeton last year, but he's going to be back this year, and they're going to be better than they've been before. So, um, mm, uh, so definitely uh, uh, definitely bodes well, doesn't it, for 2019, uh, 2020? You've got a few teams with uh, with some chips on their shoulders as well. They'll be uh, Gunning for Harvard. 
uh, uh, people will be gunning for Harvard and people haven't forgotten how dominant Trinity has been. They'll be gunning yeah, for them as well. So, absolutely. Uh, no, I think the, co- the men's college uh, scene is going to be very, very competitive this year. Very competitive. Now, you mentioned uh, the Hall of Famer, Paul Asciante. I've had the, the pleasure of speaking to him a couple of times as well. And he's uh, obviously what he's done at Trinity is the, the stuff of legend. You, you alluded to it, to it earlier. But he just returned from the Pan Am Games with two team gold medals, the men's and women's. And I don't think that's ever been done before. Uh, you know Paul very well. And you've seen him on courtside hundreds of times, I'm sure, no doubt. Uh, how uh, Describe his ability. Uh, describe him as a coach and what makes him the Hall of Famer that he is. He's really, uh, he does it, he's sort of low-key about all of it, um, uh, but he, um, the, uh, he's he been, first of all, a great recruiter. Secondly, a really, really good coach as well. One thing I have, to, Trinity has, is at one point they won the Potter Cup 13 years in a row, beginning in 99 and ending uh, through the 2011 season. They lost a very close 5-4 Potter Cup final to Princeton in 2012 and then won it again in 2013. So they won, they won 13 straight and, and 14 out of 15 years uh, during that period. And there were many, many matches in which uh, they won 5-4, you know, in a, in, as, part of the, as, as part of the Potter Cup, meaning that they'd lost that last match, they would have been out. And that's too many, it just, it's happened too often that Trinity players have been able to claw their way out of trouble uh, in 20, 09 is one example uh, when Trinity played Princeton at Princeton in the Potter Cup final. Uh, it was four all, and Princeton's very talented number one, Mauricio Sanchez, was ahead of uh, Trinity's number one, Basa Chaudhry, 5 love in the fifth. This was a nine point scoring at the time, but he was still ahead 5 love in the fifth. Mm-hmm. Bassett um, managed to you know, run the game out from there and win, win 9 5 and, and give. Uh, you know, give uh, Trinity yet another national championship. But that Bassett's rally is one of many, many times during these five, four matches in which a Trinity player seems to be in real trouble and somehow managed to pull his way out of it. That can't be coincidence. And somewhere in there, it's got to be the case that, that the coach gets some credit there. You know, there's just too many times the Trinity players have come through for Paul not to have had a major amount to do with it. Definitely. And, um, I'm just wondering, where would you say this most recent accomplishment with, with the, uh, the USA men's and women's team? I mean, having won both men's and women's gold, uh, that's, that's got to be right up there on his list of accomplishments as well. Not, I mean, obviously he's done things that no other coach has done. He, in fact, he, he's, the, some say, the winningest uh, coach in collegiate sport history. But uh, what he did at the Pan Am Games in terms of squash itself, in terms of uh, U.S. squash and where it is on the global stage right now, that's got to be an accomplishment uh, that he's extremely proud of. I'm, I'm sure he's proud of it and well done on his part and well done on that team's part. But, but to be honest, I don't think that's anywhere close to being one of the highlights of his coaching career. The, the Americans were favored to win. They are better than the other teams that were in the Pan Am Games. Uh, um, the, the two really great uh, Men players in the uh, in that event uh, were um, were Miguel Angel uh, Rodriguez, who won the who won the British Open a few years ago, and Diego Elias, and uh, you know they they won their match against the American players. Uh, America had better players, more highly ranked players than the other teams in the Pan Am event. Mm-hmm. It's to their credit that they won. Uh, but you know, to be fair, Egypt was not in this tournament. England was no. not in this tournament. You know, the best the best world powers, you know, are not eligible to play in the Pan Am Games and didn't play in them. So, all credit to the American players for doing as well as they did. Uh, but it's not like you know making that kind of impact on in an event like the World Team Championships or something like that. No, 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 no. That that's that's for sure. Uh, and definitely, I mean, what he's done at at the. Uh, at the collegiate level, uh, it's un, unprecedented. Un, but uh, Mike Way is making a run uh, run at it, isn't he? <laughs> Hello. I've lost you. You there? Yeah, I'm here, Rob. I was just saying uh, uh, there's no question that uh, Paul's uh, accomplishments at, uh, at Trinity are, uh, are, are incredible. And uh, obviously, 
uh, what he's done with Team USA. We can't we can't overlook that. But uh, but yeah, I, I I agree with you. The, the uh, what he's done at Trinity. One other thing too, the Trinity the Trinity players all all also say that that one way or another Paul finds a way. They have tremendous faith in him. He's got had to navigate some, you know, interesting challenges. He's got a lot of players from, you know, different countries. And mm. uh some well, that's what he mentioned uh, on my podcast. He said he had he had to speak ten languages. He had to do what? Be able to speak ten different languages. All right, well, I'm not sure how uh, quite that multilingual, but, no, no. Um, you know, he's had players from different backgrounds. He's had players from different backgrounds, different cultures, different countries. And yeah. he and he's not only, uh, you know, that not only has he not had that become a problem, he's actually turned that into an, an advantage. They, they really, somehow he's gotten the player, whatever set of players he has, and, you know, it's changed tremendously, of course, over these years. Uh, he's been able to get them to sort of play together, play for a common result, uh, be good teammates with each other, feel loyal to the, to the Trinity program and loyal to him. And that's really completely on him as far as I'm concerned. One other thing about Paul, he um, several times won the, uh, he won the, he's won several U.S. national veteran age group doubles championships. He won, I remember one in particular that he won with Gordy Anderson, I think the 40 and over back in 94. And he also in 2003 won the uh, U.S. 50 and over softball singles championship. So Paul, you know, was a good player as well and uh, was a good tennis player. He was a coach in world team tennis. He's got a lot. He was a coach at Army for a number of years before he went to Trinity. He's had a tremendous amount of multi-level exposure to and, you know, achievement in the sport at the playing level as well as at the coaching level. And it's really, and he's, you know, he, he does all this with a, with a smile and, um, you know, even in spite of some physical issues he's had, he, um, he had a detached retina a couple of months ago and basically couldn't see out of his right eye mm. while he was coaching at the Pan Am games. And right. yet he still, you know, right. went over there to Peru and, and uh, you know, did we had to, to get those teams over the top. He even got the attention of uh, none other than uh, Bill Belichick, coach of the, uh, the NFL's uh, New England Patriots. I, I gather he spoke to, uh, to the Patriots before one of their, uh, one of their games a few years ago. <laughs> yes, uh, Bill and Paul, uh, I don't know quite what the connection is, but um, but they are buddies clearly. And yes, uh, Bill Belichick did have Paul come over to uh, to speak to the team before one of their playoff games, I think, uh, as part of one of the years that the Patriots won the Super Bowl. Paul also, incidentally, has thrown out the first pitch a number of times at Fenway Park uh, during uh, the spring after the years that his teams have won the National uh, College Championship. So oh, great. Oh. Uh, Paul has expanded his exposure to include the Boston sports scene. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. Now, speaking of baseball, uh, Rob, I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, mention your Yankees. Uh, to me, they, they look like a shoe in to, uh, to get to the World Series. I'm not so sure they're going to win it, but uh, how do you feel heading uh, into uh, you know, the postseason's not too far off? They've had an amazing season uh, themselves. Uh, they have had a tremendous number of injuries to frontline players. Their ace pitcher, Luis Severino, has yeah. not pitched for them this whole season. One of their best relief pitchers, Dylan Betances, has not pitched for them this whole season. Hap hasn't been as solid as he should be. Hap has been. Hap is, Hap is uh, he's hapless. the weakest starting pitcher. Right. right. He, he's hapless, hapless is exactly right. <laughs> we just hope that. We just hope they get through a game when he's about to pitch. But John yeah. Carlos uh, Stanton, John Carlos Stanton, who was the league MVP a couple of years ago for the National League when he was with the Marlins, he had he's played I think eight or nine games all year because he's been injured. They've had I think over twenty injury, uh, twenty you know important players at one time or another have been on the injured list, which is what used to be called the DL, the disabled list. Now it's called the injured list. They've missed a tremendous amount of time, and they've had players who nobody even thought of, like Gio Urshela, who's played a great third base for them. Uh, uh, they've had a number of players. Uh, uh, there's actually a, a guy who, who was at Princeton, um, uh, Mike Ford, who has played a good first base for them because several of their first basemen have gotten injured. They've had one player who's been uh, just great for them all year, and that's DJ LeMahieu, who's, right, leading, yeah, who's yeah. I think, second 
batting right now. He plays three positions. They got him from Colorado. To be honest, I'd never heard of him before the Yankees got him this year. He is he would be the league MVP this year if it were not for Mike Trout of the California Angels, who's, you know, possibly going to win the triple crown. Right. But they've had a lot of players. They've had a lot. Didi Gregoris was out for a long time. They're shortstop. They've had almost everybody injured or uh, uh, Aaron Judge, you know, missed yeah. uh, about two months yeah. with it when he the bleak muscle. Well, they didn't do what the Yankees typically uh, do, did they, at the trade deadline? They they didn't throw millions and millions at any of these guys that were available, and they just stuck to what they have, and, you know, here they are. Well, yeah, and and they may or may not pay a price for that. The one area where they really were in a position to add some people, and I think needed to, was starting pitching. There were some very good starting pitchers available out there. Uh, Zach Greinke uh, was available, and the Houston Astros uh, grabbed him. They now have him as well as Verlander. Um, Yeah, Houston looks solid. uh, Trevor Bauer was available. There were a number – uh, Madison Baumgartner, who was the MVP of the World Series when the Giants won in 2014, he was available. The Yankees decided to stay pat with a with a starting pitching that uh, group that is a little bit shaky, and who and that could especially you know starting pitch especially important in a in a short playoff series, and it remains to be seen if uh, if they're going to pay the price for that or not because they they really are sort of they decided not to go after those guys who were available and other contending teams took them and uh, we'll see how that uh, how that all plays out in the oh. end because at this point at this point with all the talk about Aaron Boone, uh, Aaron Judge and Gary Sanchez and some of the other players that came up a few years ago this Yankee team has not really done anything yet they have not won a World Series now since 2009 this is the tenth year from that. And really nothing less than that is going to, uh, I think, satisfy the Yankee fans. Yeah, definitely. Well, it won't satisfy you, will it? And certainly nothing less than that will satisfy me, that's for sure. <laughs> well, uh, what I have going for, for me, being a Blue Jays, sort of Blue Jays fan, I was always an Expos fan in the past, but uh, I mean, the Jays have a seemingly a very young, very uh, talented young team. They just need a few more pieces, and, and I think we'll see them uh, – contending in two or three years they've got Guerrero they've got uh, Bo Bichette and amongst other uh, younger guys that are there and a few good young pitchers Uh, it's not going to happen next year but uh, I don't think we're that far off uh, I think that's right. And and uh, some of those young guys, uh, Bichette and Guerra particularly, made a real impact uh, on some of the series that the Blue Jays have had with the Yankees this year. That's a very talented team that's on the, on the rise and it probably could be right the time frame you're mentioning, two or three years before they're back to being contenders again. Cheers, Rob. That's what the, I, I wanted to hear your, your approval on that one. But um, at any rate, my friend, uh, uh, all the best to you. And uh, really, thanks, thanks a lot for that. Uh, Damian Mudge's retirement, mean, I know Damian means a lot to the pro, has meant a lot to the uh, pro double squash scene, and you've covered him uh, for all these years. And I appreciate you coming on and, and sharing uh, your knowledge and your stories of Damian with us today. Well, uh, thank you very much for having me on. I'm really uh, honored to be able to sort of frame uh, his career in the in the perspective where I believe it belongs. Cheers, Robin. I hope to let's do this again uh, in a few more months. Can't wait. I'm 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 ready whenever you give me a ring. Well, thanks so much, Rob, for that. Really enjoyed it, and uh, looking forward to having uh, him on again uh, to talk about any you know aspect of the game. But I think we'll have uh, hopefully have him back on uh, in the midst of uh, the college squash season. Uh, it's going to be an interesting one to see if Harvard uh, can continue their dominance, or if the other teams uh, will step up and uh, step up to the uh, plate and see if they, they can take them down. And also the pro double scene will be kicking off without, obviously, uh, Damian Mudge and his, uh, and his partner, uh, Manic Mather, uh, who may or may not return uh, this season. We don't know. But uh, he'll be back to uh, talk about that and much more, I'm sure. And uh, thank you all very much. I've got another one dropping, another episode, uh, which I've just completed. Uh, coming up very soon. Uh, Millie Tomlinson, she came on. Uh, we uh, finally got that one uh, done, and uh, yeah, I know you'll like that one too. So um, thanks, everyone, for listening. Take care. Enjoy your squash. Goodbye now.